I'd like to have you turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Now, we're not going to do all of the 12 and 20 today. We are going to reserve some of that for next week. But I'd like to do in the next week, uh, this week and next week, uh, a series of, of two studies anyway, if, if we can call two studies a series, on From Darkness to Light. And today's focus is on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is probably the most important factor to understanding really why we rejoice at a time like this week. Most of the world is uh, celebrating Christmas in one way or another. What we will really learn is that it isn't so much about celebrating anything. It's, a, it's about rejoicing over what God has done. And there's a big difference between celebrating and rejoicing, as we shall see. But I take this passage because of this statement that is made in the first couple of verses by the Apostle Paul who begins this particular chapter in praying for this particular church in Colossae. And uh, in verse 12, he says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. By the way, that's speaking of Jesus. And he is before all things and by him all things Consist, in other words, all things are held together by Jesus. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So if we truly want to get a handle on the reason for the season or the reason why people celebrate Christmas and why believers should rejoice in this season, what we would do well to consider more specific biblical or doctrinal terminology such as the reason for the incarnation, <clears throat> excuse me, the incarnation. Now this word incarnation comes from the Latin verb incarnare, which means to make flesh or to become flesh or to take upon flesh. And when we say that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, we are simply saying that the Son of God the second person of the triune God took on a fleshly bodily form. However, when this took place in the womb of Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, he did not stop being deity. He retained his rank and position as God. He did not set aside his deity. Now, he volunteered to come to this earth. There were certain things that he would do as, 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 uh, in his humanity, but he always had his deity. And we begin to see that. Now we just finished a, a study, a, a, an extensive study in the Gospel of John. Well, we go back now to chapter 1 again, for just a moment, if you will, and look at the first uh, four verses, because here is an establishment of the understanding of the incarnation of Jesus. In that it says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. The highest understanding, the highest form, the highest thought of God, that's the logos. 
In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is no doubt that that is what the text says. I say that because there are some translations that will add a little article to the, to the phrase to say he was a God, but he was not a God, he is the God, and only God. And the same was in the beginning with God. Now that tells us that he was eternal. Because for us, there is a beginning. But for God, there is neither beginning nor end. Because he's an eternal being. Therefore, the word, the Logos, is eternal. So all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That tells us that the Logos was the creator. And simply, only God can create. Out of nothing, and remember that, out of nothing. And then it says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life. Obviously, God would breathe into man that was formed out of the dust of the ground and gave him life. But it was more than that. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. As men were designed to shine forth the light of the glory of the God who created him. Then you jump down to verse 14 of chapter 1, and it says, And the word, the logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. He came to us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is no other religious uh, uh, belief system that has this kind of, of principle where God is himself coming to us who, is, who are in, in dire need of a Savior. Every other religious system pushes man having to reach up to God. Here, God comes to us. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So in other words, Jesus became fully human while maintaining both of his distinct natures, divine and human. He was 100% God, 100% man. No one else was. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Again, just substantiation to our understanding of what the incarnation is, <clears throat> where it says, Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. We could not do it because we were sinners. We could not save ourselves. We could not save anyone else. It behooved him to come and be made like unto us that he would become for us a merciful and faithful high priest. Then it goes on to say, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to help aid and relieve them that are tempted. One of our greatest helps today is the very fact that Jesus himself went through the temptations that he did when he began his earthly ministry or right before he began his earthly ministry, went through every temptation that any of us have ever had to deal with. And, and was victorious in each and every one because Jesus never sinned. In contrast, by the way, to so many people who say that Jesus was just like man and, 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 and had his, has his faults too. We'll find a verse of scripture about those people in just a moment. But here's a great reason why we should rejoice in this time and in this season. Certainly these are depressing times. They're depressing times for many people, and not just for people in general, but even for professing Christians as well. You know, there is a letdown for many people in that they spend a considerable amount of time and money and effort to make Christmas a, an enjoyable celebration, and yet the expectations and returns have been minimal for some, to say the least, and that depending on what is being expected. This depression and this discouragement are due for the most part on the fact that people's focus is turned away from the message 
of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Turned away from the message of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But this is the great joy and reason for the season. That Jesus became flesh. And dwelt among us. So that we might behold his glory. The glory as of the only begotten. Of the Father full of grace and truth. Why is it important for believers in Jesus Christ to know and to understand the importance of the incarnation? Well, while the incarnation, Jesus able to be both man and God simultaneously, we need to understand that about incarnation. While the incarnation is one of Christianity's great mysteries, it is nonetheless a test of orthodoxy. It is a test, orthodoxy is a fancy, you know, 50 cent word. But it just means a biblical confirmation of true Christian faith and practice. A biblical confirmation. Not so much just creeds of men. It is a biblical confirmation of Christian faith and practice. And the incarnation is a test of that. How do we know that? Well, we go to 1 John chapter 4. The very same apostle who wrote the gospel has written a letter to, actually wrote three letters to the church. And in his first letter to the church, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, John wrote this. He said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, which means test the spirits, whether they are of God. And when we deal with the issue of, of testing spirits, we're, te we're dealing with what, everything that we hear, everything that we see and, and hear in this world. And there are a lot of things that, you know, if we were, if we were discerning enough, we we're going to say, you know, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't look right. That's not right. That's discernment. And the basis of that discernment is the word of God. So he says, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. There are a lot of false prophets during Christmas time. And I mean a lot of them. Making everybody think that the most important thing about this season is just being happy and, 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 and you know, partying and doing all kinds of other things, you know. What they've done is perverted, uh, really, uh, uh, the time and celebration. And gotten us away from actually rejoicing over why Jesus came. But then verse 2, it says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Test every spirit, but here's how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Everybody that believes the fullness of the understanding of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, who is God, became flesh, became a man, but never lost his deity, that person is of God. And that confession is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That's not to say that he didn't come and took flesh. That is to say that he's Jesus, but he's not God. Uh, and that's another understanding of it. Okay? Because there are those who, who, who would say that he didn't really come in the flesh. There, there, and this is why the book of Colossians, which is what we started with, was written. So that people would know that Jesus Christ was indeed truly God and truly man. And to know the real Jesus. Because there were in those days these uh, Gnostics who had these heresies about the fact that Jesus was not really a person. But you could see him, but he was like a phantom. And he could, you know, he could walk but not leave any footprints. That kind of thing, you know. So every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Whereof you have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world. So the spirit of Antichrist has been around 2,000 years. At least. I mean it was around even before that. But according to what uh, Paul has been writing and John has been writing. It was already in the world. And then in his, in his second letter, Second uh, John, it's only one chapter, so in verses 7 and 9, or 7 through 9, John actually builds up uh, an understanding of this very same uh, issue when he says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And then he says, look to yourselves. Examine yourselves. That we lose not those things which we have wrought, which we have labored for. But that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. The doctrine of Christ as it applies to the understanding of the incarnation of Jesus. All man, all God. Or all God, all man. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. That is, an, that, 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 that is a, 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 a great, an amazing testimony. To know that we have the Father and the Son because we believe the Word of God. We're not confused like those who say, look, unless you go knock on doors and, and, and pass out literature here and there and everywhere, uh, unless you do all of that, you may, you, you may or may not get into heaven or, or whatever they consider heaven to be. No, there is something very clear that if you believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to believe him to be all God and all man, you have both the Father and the Son. What it says is you have a, a new heart. You have a new heart that can understand the word of God. And certainly today there are those deceivers in our midst, disguised as believers. I'll even go as far as saying they are biblical, quote-unquote, biblical theologians. They have the degrees on their walls, and, and on their degrees, they have so many different uh, initials after their names. You MDiv, you know what that is, right? A master's in divinity. Uh, you know, MDiv, uh, uh, DDiv, uh, MUSE, whatever. I mean, you know, there's just all kinds of letters after their name. But these quote-unquote biblical theologians are doing the enemy's bidding by bringing confusion to the church and those who may be seeking truth in denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ. One work in particular, written by a number of contributors, all of them being theologians, is called The Myth of God Incarnate. The Myth of God Incarnate. And one of those contributors... His name is Maurice Wiles, was and could still be, listen, the chairman of the Church of England's Doctrine Commission. Now here's a guy who doesn't believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but he's the chairman of a commission on doctrine in the Church of England. Now if you're not familiar with the Church of England, we, uh, those who are in England are called Anglicans. And, and around the world, they're called Episcopalians. Maybe that's something that you can recognize. And there are Episcopalian churches. There are even Episcopalians that believe in Jesus. And believe that he is God incarnate. But here is a guy who is a chairman in, 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 a, in, in the Church of England's doctrinal or doctrine commission who doesn't believe in the incarnation of Jesus. I mean, these authors, and by the way, all the authors who have written in this particular volume called The Myth of God Incarnate, all of them deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny the incarnation. They deny the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. And then they say that he was not different in, in kind from any other man. All I can tell you is, wow. And, and, and I wrote that here, wow. And it's, it's as strong as it going forward as it is backward. Wow, wow, you know. It just like blows you away. And these are the theologians who are telling us, oh, you know, we've learned some things along the way. No, the, the, you know, Satan, the enemy, has deceived you. And you've bought into a lie. Now, scriptural support. For Jesus' humanity is quite extensive. Scriptural support. The Gospels make clear the need our Lord had for things like sleep and food, even physical protection. Jesus also perspired and he bled. 
We could go long ways in, in, in you know, bringing up scriptures on each of these points. When it, let's, let's just focus on sleep for just a minute. You remember a time when Jesus came onto a, one of the boats where the disciples were, and they were on, on the Galilee, and all of a sudden, you know, he, Jesus just said, hey, guys, I want to go to bed, man. He went to sleep. He just fell, he fell asleep. And then all of a sudden, a storm started, and they're trying to get this boat to stay afloat, you know, and it's going this way and that way. And Jesus is just nice and peaceful and sleeping, you know. That guy could sleep through anything, you know, right? Yeah, right, okay. The Lord, he's the Lord, not the guy. Yeah, yeah. So he can sleep through anything, and, all, and then all of a Son, you know, I mean, the, the apostles they said, Well, we gotta go, well, the, the, we gotta go wake him up. I mean, because I mean, we're, we're gonna die, we're all gonna perish. And they wake him up, and Jesus gets up and he says, Peace be still, you still see. And then, and then he said, Oh, you have little faith, you know, but he needed sleep. Then he went back to sleep, probably. I mean, why not? So, so the Bible points out these things, he needed food. When I think of him perspiring and bleeding, though, I thought that was unique. Because when we see Jesus perspiring, he perspired drops of blood in in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was making his way to the cross. And it was certainly there on the cross where Jesus bled. He bled all the way there too, didn't he? He bled in the court of the chief priests because they would beat him. He bled in the praetorium before Pilate being mocked. He was scourged by Pilate for being innocent. Figure that one out. He bled on the way to the cross along the streets of the Via Dolorosa. And of course he bled on Calvary. Jesus was fully human. He expressed emotions. He expressed such things as joy and sorrow and even anger. You say anger? Yes, anger. Mark 3, verse 5. He's in a synagogue where a man has a withered hand. And all of these people, and, and Jesus knows their hearts, and, and, and all these people are sitting there thinking these things. And, God, and Jesus knew that. But they're, they're saying, I wonder, if, I wonder if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. Because if he heals on the Sabbath, oh my, that, that's a work. That's work, and he shouldn't work on the Sabbath. Shouldn't be done. Jesus knew this. So we read in verse 5, and when he had looked round about on them with anger, he was looking at them with anger. And Jesus could do that. The Bible calls that right, uh, well, it, it refers to it kind of as righteous indignation. It's, it's, it's an indignation that comes from him, of course, being completely righteous. But when he had looked round about them on, uh, on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Don't forget, a synagogue is a meeting place for those who would read the Torah. They would read the scriptures. It's like going to church. Can you imagine being in a church with a hard heart? But none of you have a hard heart this morning, do you? Who knows? The Lord knows. Being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored, whole as the other. Wow. In this one verse, we see Jesus in his humanity, anger, and we see him in his deity, a healer. Can you have one without the other? No. You can't. And that's just one example out of many that we find in Scripture of Jesus showing both his humanity and his deity. For he was indeed all man and all God. But the purpose of the incarnation wasn't to taste food or to feel sorrow or to feel anger. 
Simply the Son of God came in the flesh for two essential reasons. One, to reveal God the Father to men. To reveal God to men. And two, to redeem fallen man, for man was sinful. All of us were born in sin. And not one person born outside of Jesus Christ was not born in sin. All of us were born in sin. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve, all of us have been tainted with sin. And Jesus came in order to be the Savior of the world. The Savior of mankind. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now before... Jesus came. The whole, uh, the whole of Psalm 19, by the way, the whole of Psalm 19 makes it very clear that in the past, the Lord God had revealed himself through his works. In fact, uh, your homework for today is to read Psalm 19. because It's only 14 verses. You can do it when you get home. It won't take too long. But let me subdivide it for you. The first six verses has to do with God being revealed through his works. The heavens, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Wonderful passage here. And verses 1 through 6 speak about God being revealed through his works. And then also he was revealed through his word. That is verses 7 through 14. And it talks about the word. It's a beautiful passage there. The word of the Lord is perfect. The law, in other words, the law of the Lord is perfect. And so on and so forth. So he was revealed through his works and through his word. But with Christ coming in the flesh, the incarnation, <clears throat> God was and is revealed in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So when we read a passage like Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3, this, this really gives us an indication then of the importance of the incarnation to reveal God the Father. For it says here in verse 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days <clears throat> spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, he can do that because his Son is his only begotten Son, and they are linked together by divinity. And so he has appointed him heir of all things by whom also he made the world. Which tells us again that Jesus is the creator. Jesus spoke things into existence. And then who being the brightness of his glory. What does that tell us? That, that tells us that Jesus is the light of the glory of God the Father. In him was the light was life, and in him was the light of life, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. In other words, the exact representation, the exact stamping of the Father was Jesus. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So as for redeeming fallen man, nothing can be more clearly recorded in the scriptures than the fact that the principal purpose for the incarnation was to save men from their sins. It was first and foremost to reveal God, but it was to save men from their sins. Jesus had to put on flesh. He had to put on flesh because in flesh is also blood. And without flesh and without blood, there is no redemption for man. This is the reason why Jesus is called the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Because the reality was that Jesus going to the cross was taking that place for us. Just as the lambs that were taken during the times of Passover... And as it is now in Yom Kippur, uh, even though they don't sacrifice now, it still is the same idea. Looking back at what God had said 
would be only a picture of what Jesus, the Messiah, would come to do for all of man who would believe in him, both Jew and Gentile. Saving men from their sins. And this should bring us now to a better understanding then of one of the greatest passages of scriptures ever written. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. There's the purpose of the incarnation. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then Jesus himself in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 would say, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Another great representation of the love that God had for the world that the love that the love that God had for his creation especially the high point of his creation which was man because man was created and man alone created in the image of God no other creature so when you hear all of this talk that we came from apes and we came from lower species and, and whatnot, I mean, that is to destroy, that is to pervert completely what God had made to be right and holy, which was his perfect creation. Adam was created, but Adam fell. The second Adam was to show us the height of what God meant to create in man. And that was Jesus, both God and man. And the difference between Jesus and Adam is that Jesus was eternal, for he did not have a beginning other than the fact that he had a beginning with a, with a body, but not who he really was. He was eternal. And the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, which really amplifies the understanding of God's love for you and for me. How could he love us but to come and seek us out and to save us from our sins? And then in Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to give his life a ransom. You know, when you think of the word ransom today, you think of, well, you know, people today have, you know, especially people who are very wealthy and, and well off, you know, they have family that, that sometimes they're younger family members or someone gets, gets kidnapped, you know, and then they hold them for what? For ransom. They hold them for a ransom and they make calls, you know, they say, well, we want $10 million, you know. Well, that, that might be high, maybe a million dollars or even a hundred thousand dollars, you know. Now, for me, I don't even think they'd ask for ten bucks, but that's all right. You know. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know. But every one of us is that important to the Lord for him to give his life as a ransom for many. We don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But that's the love of God. And because all of us have failed to fulfill God's law in and of ourselves, we can't keep the whole law. It brings to mind Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. We try, we try to fulfill God's law in and of ourselves. The Jewish people continue to do that. But not one of them can be honest enough to say that they have fulfilled all 604 laws that are found, that they have, you know, kind of discovered in, this, in, in their study of the scriptures and the Torah. Can they keep all those laws? They keep a few and then they lose another. By the way, man couldn't even keep one law in the garden. 
So go figure. And so because all of us have failed to fulfill God's law in and of ourselves, it was necessary for Jesus to be born under the law. He was, it was necessary for him to be born under the law. Turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. As you're turning there, and I hope you're turning there because I don't hear many pages turning. I, you know, it's hard to hear you know, when you're doing it on your iPad. No, you, you need to get that app that has the, the sound of, of page turning. And then put it, up to, to put it up to high so I can hear it. You know, so, so I can hear it. At least it'll make me feel better. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of the time was come, the fullness of the time means at the very exact minute, the very exact second, the very exact hour, the very exact moment that Jesus was to be born. When man needed us, when man needed him the most, God sent forth his son at that very exact right. I mean, Jesus was not born one day too soon or one day too late. God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now what's important to understand here is that the law was given, of course, to Moses. And Moses then, of course, gave the law to the Jewish people. And, 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 and this was the law that they were then to take to the whole world. Because when you go back far enough, you begin to realize we're all connected. And all of us have sinned. Jew and Gentile, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And he had to be born under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And so the scripture was fulfilled in that. Jesus came in the flesh under the law that he might fulfill the law on our behalf as Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He came to fulfill the law for us because we could not fulfill it ourselves. No matter how hard we tried in the flesh, we could not and cannot and never will in our flesh fulfill the law. So Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And another necessity for the Savior to redeem us was to have that physical body that he might shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Because again, unless there is a physical body that it contains within it the, the, the lifeblood of, of, of a person, then there is no way for any true blood, in his case, perfect, righteous blood to be shed for the sins of men. Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the reason why the, the Lord gave to the Jewish people the, the, the sacrificial system. Why he gave them all of these things in order and they were to fulfill these things down to the very down to the very thing that they were to do in making the, 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 the uh, furnishings for the temple, uh, I should say the, the tabernacle back in the time of Moses, everything had to be done just right. And then came the understanding of the animals that were to be sacrificed, even, even the, uh, uh, the grain offerings and, and everything else. There were specifics that needed to be followed. In all of that, Jesus fulfilled it all in and of himself. And you know how we know that he fulfilled all of those things? Think about the seven I am statements of Jesus for just a moment. I am the bread of life was the very first one. I'm the bread of life. You know, there were grain offerings and wave offerings given. That's part of the understanding of that. I am the good shepherd. But the fact of the matter is, he never had to say because he already was pointed out by John the Baptist as, behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who taketh away the sin of the world. All of these things, all of them are layers that add up to one thing. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, came to redeem us from our sins.
Hebrews 10 verse 5 says, Wherefore when he, came, he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Now this is a prophetic statement from Psalm 40 that Paul uses here in Hebrews 10. He says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest, wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. This is pointing forward to the incarnation of Jesus. And without the incarnation, Jesus could not really die. And the cross, in effect, would be completely meaningless without the incarnation. And so what an amazing work the Lord did in sending his only begotten son into the world, providing us with a salvation that is so rich, so dear, and for us so undeserving. And there's not one of us, as I mentioned even earlier, that, that, that could, could say that we're deserving of anything, any good thing. Now, you might be wondering, when are we getting to Colossians? How about now? One great attribute or quality found in the biblical account of the birth of Christ is the importance of darkness and light. From creation to the prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah, from creation where we read there in the beginning was, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. We hear and know that it would be the voice of Jesus that would say in Hebrew, light be, light was. Let there be light from darkness to light. There's that principle. We see it in the prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. I read it earlier, as a matter of fact, in Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them has the light shined. We see it in Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where he tells his disciples and listeners, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. And he draws that contrast of, of darkness to light. We are the light in our day and time. We even see it in the process of birth. Biologically and physiologically, we, we're all born pretty much the same way. We're all supposed to spend close to nine months, you know, in, in, in our mother's womb. There's no light there. No light in the womb. It's dark until we come forth into light. Something that God is wanting us to understand and for us to know. There's always been a reminder of darkness to light. The Apostle Paul in his passing from prayers to praise in our text, as I mentioned, he began with prayers for the church in Colossae, but then he reminds us of this transition when he says in verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet, or he made us fit. And I'll, I'll expand the definition of that word in, in a moment. But he made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And by the way, here he begins with light. But the phrase literally in the, in the Greek is he has, <coughs> excuse me, made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance in the light. That is the light of the glory of Christ who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us or transferred us or moved us into the kingdom of his dear son. Notice the kingdom of his son. That's significant when we consider the incarnation of Jesus. And then he says in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. Only God can redeem us. 
Only God can forgive us. Yet it is Christ who has done both. Therefore, he is God. And he is also man. It is implied that as a result of Adam's fall in the garden, something was lost to us, and then something was also left to us. We lost something in the garden. Paradise was lost for us in the garden. But what was left for us? What was left for us was an inherited fallen nature. Well, that's like two strikes there. (laughs) We lost paradise. Man was kicked out of the garden. Man was told that he was now to sweat and work and bleed and do all kinds of other things to exist and would have a fallen nature that would pass on to every generation beyond. So there would be little value, if any, for the Lord to restore our lost estates without first dealing with our fallen condition. I mean, you know, he could restore some sense of paradise to us, but then without dealing with our fallen condition, we'd only lose it again. That's where Israel kind of is a picture for us, you know. They kept coming back to God, but they themselves would continue to, you know, after a while, you know, it was that, that vicious circle of coming back to God and then going back into sin, coming back to God, going back. Uh, the book of Judges is a good picture of that. So the Lord began to make, uh, he began by making us fit or meet to be partakers of the inheritance. It, and and uh, Paul uses the word hikanu, which, which means to make us fit, it means to enable us or to make us efficient, to qualify us to be partakers. We can't qualify ourselves in and of ourselves, we can't qualify ourselves. He has to make us fit. He has to make us enabled. He has to be the one to make us efficient. In, a, in effect, he makes us sufficient. We were disqualified by Adam from partaking of the inheritance. We are now qualified to do so in Jesus Christ. We were disqualified by Adam. We are qualified by Jesus Christ. And what an inheritance it is. Paul calls it the inheritance of the saints in the light. And this refers to the spiritual blessings that enable us to live for the Lord even in the darkness of this world while also focusing on the bright eternal inheritance of heaven itself. Folks, we have something that the world cannot understand. We're not only looking for the coming of Jesus Christ, we are looking for the coming of Christ to redeem us fully and completely and to save us out of this world so that we may enjoy the brightness of the glory of God in heaven. Heaven is not just one of these wonder if I'm going to get there kind of things. The Bible is very clear that we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been promised. And and by the way, we are already seated. I mean, read the book of Ephesians chapter 1. It says we are already seated in heavenly places in Christ. I didn't do that, but Jesus did. And he promises that as we dwell and abide in Christ so the the apostle knew about the kind of light that that uh, that he was writing about because he had seen that kind of light in Acts chapter 26 where there toward the end of the book of Acts and and he's now in in Jerusalem uh, he's actually standing before King Agrippa taken before King Agrippa and he gives his testimony And one of the things that he says in his testimony in verses 12 and 13 is, Whereupon as I went to Damascus, and by the way, he went to Damascus as Saul of Tarsus. He was a a very uh, righteous Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, you know, and he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and so on and so forth. Whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, he was going to Damascus for what reason? To persecute Christians. He said, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven. A light from heaven. Above the brightness of the sun. 
Which means that he saw a light that was greater than the sun, greater than the power of the sun, greater than the light of 10,000 suns. Some of you in the 60s might remember a song that had that phrase in it. Shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. He had seen that light. Paul saw the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ who appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the pricks? Why are you kicking against the goats? You see, the characteristics of the incarnate Son of God are clearly stated by Paul here in this letter to the Colossians. The characteristics of the incarnate Son of God. We have redemption through His blood, he says. Redemption can only come from God. The forgiveness of sins. We, we can only receive forgiveness from God Himself. For by Him all things were created. Only God can create. Created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, principalities and powers. All things were created by him and for him and by him all things consist. By him, by Yeshua, by Jesus Christ, by him all things are held together. Every atom and every molecule that is in this world is held together by Jesus Christ. I've said this many times, but uh, be thankful that the Lord is holding the molecules of that chair you're sitting on together because if you if you weren't you'd be on the floor or maybe through the floor I don't know these characteristics throughout the scriptures are limited only to God himself and yet here they are attributed to Jesus Christ the son of God who is indeed God the son but the one verse that I want to focus upon today and I know it's getting late but this is the one verse and it's not going to take long so it says in Colossians 1 verse 15 this is going to carry us into next week. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. Now we already saw a verse in Hebrews chapter 1 that deals with him being the exact image, the express image, the stamp, the representation of God. But here Paul says, and he wastes no words in declaring Jesus Christ as the image of the invisible God. This is a very different word in, a sense, in the sense of image because scripture is clear that God is a spirit, a great and marvelous and mysterious attribute with which our own finite minds struggle in coping with that concept. You know, it's hard to cope with the concept of, of a God that is, that, is, that, is, uh, that is spirit, that is invisible, that we can't see. And then add to that the concept of God who has always existed. A God who is eternal, who, who, who never had a beginning and has no end. That's hard for us to understand because we had a beginning and we kind of look at the fact that we're going to have an end in this life. And our God transcends time. Think about this. That those seven I am statements of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John, every time he says I am, that should tell us something. The first time we see that, in effect, was when, when Moses asked God, what is your name? And God says, I am that I am. The issue is about his complete existence always. I am, I always am, and will always am be I am. I like to put it this way. He is the great I is. Because he is always. His is always a present. There's no past. There's no present. There's no future. He is. And will always be. Because he is absolutely holy. He is incapable of sin. And he's very capable of unfailing love. Sadly, this is a driving force, though. Behind man's incredible folly of idolatry. The foolishness of idolatry. Man's inability to grasp a God who is invisible and immaterial and hence want a God, they want a God that they can see and feel. And that is the word image, same word, 
as in Romans 1.23. But let me read to you Romans uh, 1 verses 21 through 23 because it says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Do you remember our buddies, the, the biblical theologians who wrote the myth of, the, of God incarnate? It gets better for them here. It says, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image, same word, into an image made like to corruptible man. What did they say about Jesus? Oh, he's, he's, he's just like other men. No, he's not. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and then it gets worse, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Those are the gods of the evolutionists, of the secular humanists, of all of those today who have rejected the truth of God. The Greeks who were famous for their philosophy, their science, their politics, their arts. The Greeks, as much as we would say, why, they, they gave much to the world. You know what? They were fools when it came to the knowledge of God, according to the definition of fool in Romans 1. Their religion was overrun by idols of gods that consumed their intellect, their physical prowess and the like. Their gods were just a much larger addition of themselves. But this was in many cultures until Jesus came. And then came Jesus, God in the flesh. He was God and had always been God. He came voluntarily to this earth to, this earth to be born. An unprecedented moment in the annals of history, time, and eternity. Because when a baby is born on this earth, a new person is created. A new personality starts to form. But when Jesus was born, it wasn't the creation of a new personality at all. It was the coming into this world of a person who had existed for all eternity. God became man without ceasing to be God. And so we close with these verses. John 1.14, which we read earlier, and the word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, we beheld the incarnate Son of God. Lastly, in John 14, words in an intimate setting with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And I, and I would just urge you to just remember these, these words as well. Because it was Thomas who asked him the question, uh, saying, we, we know not whether thou goest, how can we know the way? And Jesus responds by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. And Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the father. And it sufficeth us. <laughs> and Jesus said unto him, Oh, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? And then he says, He that has seen me hath seen the father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The incarnation of Jesus reveals the God over all. Because he is God. And will always be God. We as Christians need to rejoice in this time and season. The world likes to celebrate, but the Bible is very clear. We are to rejoice 
And rejoicing is a lot different than just celebrating. Notice what the world has done with celebrating. Celebrations everywhere. But is everybody happy? Watch the NFL. After every football, after every touchdown, what do they do? Celebrate. Now they let them. And that's, and that's a team that scores one touchdown when they're losing by 30 points. So what are they celebrating? You know, let's don't worry about celebrating. Let's, let's begin to rejoice for what God has done in sending his only begotten son for you and for me to have eternal life and to enjoy forever.